Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Numbers, today in Numbers chapter 22. As we continue our study through this book, we are coming to a very familiar passage. Uh, my wife and I were remarking this week, almost a strangely familiar passage. Uh, of all of the Old Testament Bible stories that we know so well and that get included in those picture Bibles that we read to our kids, why among them is, is Balaam and his donkey so often included? Why do we know it so well and it's so familiar even though it's such a perplexing passage? We sometimes feel like we don't know what to do with this one. Yeah, we, we teach it to our kids. Uh, we stuff it in their Bibles. We act it out, as, as one commentator said, and, and the kids love to make dad play the part of the donkey, and they get to beat on him with impunity. Uh, but underneath all of this, uh, what, what could seem like a great Bible story for kids, there is a very mature lesson here for us today. We're going to read together this chapter uh, and open it up, Lord willing, together. Uh, Numbers chapter 22, we'll read the entirety, 41 verses. Uh, and, then, uh, and then we'll uh, see what the Lord has to teach us through it. Before we read this text, let me go to the Lord and, and we'll seek together uh, God's blessing on his word. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we pray that you would open our eyes. You have opened the mouths of your prophets and you've given us your word so that we can hear it and understand it. Uh, but we confess that unless you work by your spirit, we, we continue blind. Uh, we continue deaf to the word of your gospel. We uh, continue with hard and unbelieving hearts, not trusting in the Savior you sent into the world. Help us, O oh Lord, to see him and hear his word and to believe in him today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're now God's word as we find it in Numbers chapter 22. Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel, and Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now look up, lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they're dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you cursed is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, the people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. 
So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, Balak sent princes more in number and more honorable than these. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, let nothing hinder you from coming to me. For I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight, that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him, and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab on the border formed by the Arnon at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they 
came to Kiriath-Huzoth. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal. And from there he saw a fraction of the people. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. I imagine that a baseball jersey is probably the last thing that you would expect to find buried in the bottom of a concrete footer. But that's where they found it. At an estimated cost of around $40,000, it took recovery crews five hours of jackhammering through two feet of cement before they could pull David Ortiz's number 34 jersey out of the rubble. It was put there by Gino Castagnoli. Castagnoli, you need to understand, is a lifetime Sox fan. Uh, he works construction in the Bronx, New York, and when the company he worked for received the contract to build the new Yankees stadium, he couldn't help but try to put the juju on his lifelong rivals. Now, Numbers 22 is like that. Tucked inside this wonderful account of the God who tabernacles with his people in the wilderness, we find a story about a pagan magician and the conversation that he had with his donkey. It seems completely out of place, like a sabotage, like a jersey stuffed in between the rebar, like a Bible story that raises far more questions in our minds than it answers. We have questions when we come to this text. Questions like, is Balaam a good guy or a bad guy? Questions like, why does the Lord get mad at Balaam for going to Moab when he just said Balaam could go to Moab? Questions in the text like, how did the Israelites find out that all of this was going on behind the scenes in the first place? Now, this is a different kind of text. Today we're going to take a different kind of approach. Rather than breaking this up into three nice alliterative points, uh, we're going to step back. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to look at the whole, uh, see the whole narrative together, and then at the end we'll come back and look at three uh, nice alliterative points. Not, not really. Uh, there are three points. We'll, we'll draw some application at the end, but first we're simply going to look and see this text. Before we get there, I want you to know where we're headed. Because buried under Balaam's blindness, there is an important spiritual lesson in this text. The important spiritual lesson, the takeaway, in case you forget anything else that is said from here on out, the important lesson is that there is no one, absolutely no one, who can turn God's blessing into a curse. That's the takeaway from Balaam and his donkey. There is no one, when the Lord has promised good things to his people, there is no one who is able to turn God's blessing into a curse. It's good that we keep that in mind because the story begins with someone who is trying to do exactly that. The opening verses, we meet Balak, who's the king of Moab, and he's quaking in fear at the sight of this Israelite horde encamped along the banks of the Jordan River. He is wringing his hands. He is hoping beyond hope for some strategy to defend his land from the people of Yahweh. Israel, of course, has their sights set on Canaan. They have no intention of further conquest east of the Jordan River, but Balak doesn't know that. 
All he knows is that, as chapter 21 tells us, Israel has just conquered the nation that had conquered him. And now they're here. Chapter 21, verse 26, says, Heshbon was the city of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land out of his hand as far as the Arnon. Now Balak looks out over the people of God. When he does, he imagines that their presence spells disaster with a capital D. Their tents look like the final death blow to the kingdom of his that's already tottering and wheezing on a single leg. So Balak does what any ruler would have done. He formed an alliance. He gathered together with the Midianites. He added their shields to his shields. He added their swords to his swords. And then even with their combined armies fighting together, he was aware that they were no match for the 600,000 fighting men of Israel. So he sent word to a man named Balaam. And the message was, come now, curse this people, for I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. It's a very small indication of the lengths that people will go to when spiritual blindness leads them to desperation. Pethor was a city on the Euphrates River something like 370 miles from the border of Moab. It means that this delegation would have taken nearly a month just to get there and then nearly another month to get back with Balaam provided he said yes at the first asking. The whole plan, to put it mildly, is an astronomically long shot. But it's the only shot that Balak thinks he has. The King James translation is really helpful in verse 6, because where our ESV says, perhaps, the King James uses that beautiful Old English word, peradventure. Peradventure, says Balak, send them to get Balaam, and, and peradventure I shall prevail, he says revealing just how empty his hopes are. It means that it's a long shot, and he knows it, quite frankly. It is a wing and a prayer. It is a wild Hail Mary. But maybe, just maybe, this magic man can come across the desert, and he can align the stars, or he can read the tea leaves, or he can do whatever the ancient equivalent was of burying a David Ortiz jersey in the basement of the Yankee Stadium. He can do something, and maybe, just maybe, Balak can have the hex put on his enemies, and peradventure, he might just come out on top. In other words, the beginning of our story lets us know that this is a spiritual tragedy. Do you get the feeling that Moab ought to have known better? Or at least the feeling that they could have known better. The Moabites, you, you may remember, are distant cousins to the Israelites. Their forefather was born of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter after the whole Sodom debacle. There should have been a common core of spiritual belief that could have been passed down from one generation to the next. So Balaam should have understood that the Lord, well, he had given blessing securely into the hands of Abraham and his descendants. It was his to give, and he had given it by covenant to Abraham. But you know, if the pollsters and the sociologists of our own day lived in Moab, they probably would have called it a post-Abrahamic society. 
completely devoid of the heritage of their forefathers. They've, they've long ago passed it off as something they don't need to pay attention. You know, all these myths from uh, an age gone by. And so now each man is going their own way unto destruction. They're seeking spiritual help where there really is no help to be found. It's a tragedy. Maybe if you look at it the other way, it's a comedy. Because the plan is so far-fetched that you almost want to laugh at Balak. You almost want to read that and say, come on, that's not really what you're going to do, right? That's that's the best you've got. We we, we have to think that nobody's going to take it seriously, that there would be be power in the words of mere men spoken in incantations, and we want to imagine that it's all just a joke until you remember that for whatever reason they still haven't stopped publishing the horoscopes in the newspapers. And then you open your social media feed and and you find that it's still there too in in every niche market among all of the influencers. It's there among the mommy bloggers and it's there among the fitness gurus and the relationship uh, advice givers and all of the career coaches and they're all repeating the same talking point. They're all telling you how wonderfully easy it is to hashtag manifest your future by speaking your intentions into the universe, and you say, surely this is a joke, right? So yeah, it's a long shot. That's the only plan Balak has, and so he takes the elders of Midian and Moab, and he sends them off to Balaam, verse 7 says, with the fees for divination in their hands. I guess it's one of the burning questions of this chapter, which is, Who in the world is this Balaam guy anyway? The answer is, he's a charlatan. He's somewhere between a showman and a politician and a spiritual advisor to the rich and the powerful. In the pre-Babylonian world in which he lived, they probably would have called him a baru, something like a seer, a holy man. If he had lived long enough to serve in Nebuchadnezzar's court, he might have been found among the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers of the Chaldeans. O. Palmer Robertson, who spent much of his ministry life in Africa, calls him a witch doctor. The text lets us know that he is a man that you can pay to get what you want from the gods. And if Balak's interaction with him is any indication, the more you want from the gods, well, the more you have to pay. So whether it was legitimate or not, Balaam had this reputation for effectiveness. He could get what people wanted. So the elders filled their money bags. They headed to Pethor with Balak's message. And when they got there and made their first offer, Balaam says to them, you know, you're going to have to wait here a minute while I check with my sales manager. Don't be thrown off, by the way, by the fact that the name of Yahweh appears on the lips of Balaam in verse 8. The text lets us know uh, that in uh, in his uh, dealing with the Lord, this is something that he's, well, he's playing with, really. It's one of the the smoke screens that he uses or the mirrors that he uh, he uses to, to present something great. In the pagan mind of the ancient world, names were seen to be powerful things. 
So if you knew the name of a deity, it was believed that you could, uh, you could gain spiritual power or, or, or some sort of mastery over that deity just by wielding and invoking that name. Ian Duguid also points out that Balaam, well, he was like our own politicians. He knew how to play the God card anytime it suited him. So just because Balaam knows the name of the Lord, it doesn't mean that he's a saint. In fact, notice how right after he speaks the name of the Lord, he changes the word of the Lord. Verse 9 says that God came to Balaam. We don't know if God ever came to Balaam before. We don't know his history with the God of the Bible. We don't know if perhaps Balaam is one of the many crooked sticks that the Lord uses to draw his straight lines all over the history of humanity. We don't know his history with God, but we know God came to him that night. And when God showed up, he gave him a message in three parts. Point number one, do not go with them. Point number two, do not curse them. Point number three, they're already blessed. It is almost exactly the opposite of what Balak assumed when he sent this delegation to go find Balaam in the first place. He said, those whom you curse are cursed, and God says, don't even try it. Because I've already made my decision. They're already blessed. There is no alternate reality you can speak into being. There's no spiritual lever you can pull. The Lord has declared his will for this people, and no one can overturn it. Verse 12, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. But you know, in the morning, Balaam leaves out all that talk of cursing and blessing, and he simply says, sorry guys, I can't go with you. Not this time. The Lord won't let me go. So back come Balak's emissaries. They bring back word to the king, and he reads between the lines that we should be reading between, and he hears the message that we ought to hear, and the message we ought to hear is, if you want this to work, boy, it's going to be expensive. It's all part of the negotiation, you see. Added complexity means added compensation. You can get new brakes on your Chevy for 250 bucks, but the same job on your Beamer is going to cost 1500 And if you want a prophet who can handle the gods, well, that's one price. If you want a prophet who has to go against them, well, that's going to cost you. So Balak sent more princes, it says, greater and more honorable, and he sent them carrying that big cardboard check that they take your picture with when you win the lottery. Except this check had a blank space where the dollar sign should be. Name your price, in a sense. Whatever you say I will do, he says, let nothing hinder you from coming to me. And again, Balaam's answer shows us where his heart is in this matter. Verse 18. Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. And would that he had left it there. <laughs> if he would have stopped there, what a difference it would have made. If he would have simply said, you know, the Lord's command is my boundary, and the Lord himself is my master, and I cannot transgress. Well, then we could be preaching and listening to sermons about Balaam's faithfulness. If he had just stopped there, we could change some of the language of that old camp tune, and we could sing a few bars to one another about dare to be a Balaam. 
He would have gone down in history as a good man, as a prophet even. Nobody doesn't stop there. The New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, the New Testament says that Balaam loved gain from wrongdoing. So it means that whatever showed up on Balaam's lips, this is what was in Balaam's heart. He had inside of his heart a, great, a gaping green hole of self-serving greed. What he wanted more than anything was to fill his pockets at, at, at Israel's expense. Which means that all that fine-sounding talk about houses full of silver and gold is what we call naming a price without naming a price. And you've seen it before in Genesis chapter 23. Ephraim the Hittite speaks to Abraham in the hearing of the elders, and he says, ah, Abraham, a field worth, I don't know, 400 shekels. What's that between you and me? The very next verse says, so Abraham weighed out the silver he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. In Numbers chapter 22, verse 18, the operative word here is more. Even if Balak gave me everything he had, he says, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So, you too stay here. Let me see what more God will tell me. It's a familiar pattern. There's something that we want that we know we probably shouldn't have. We know God's will in the matter. We've read God's word on the matter. We know that he has said no when we desperately wish he had said yes. So we just keep looking for more loopholes. We try everything we can find. We, we seek out one more blog post. We listen to one more podcast. We watch one more video. We try to find one more teacher who will scratch our itching ears and tell us what we want to hear. And say, you know what, there's a way to keep your integrity, to tell yourself that you're following the Lord, but also to get that thing that he has denied you. It's a familiar pattern. We know the routine. Apparently, Balaam knew the routine as well. Which means that Balaam was probably just about as surprised as you are when you get to verse 20. And you read that the Lord appeared to the sorcerer a second time, and he said, all right, Balaam, you can go. You can go. If the men have come to call you, rise and go with them, but only do what I tell you. So he did. First thing the next morning, Balaam rose and he got ready. He saddled his donkey and he set off with the princes, and that's where things get interesting. Verse 22 says, Then the anger of the Lord was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. You can read scholars go back and forth on the identity of this angel, but the best way to understand it is that this angel is the manifestation of God himself, Yahweh himself, in time and space. Verse 35 later makes it clear that what the angel says, the Lord says. And so with the clarity of the New Testament in the back of our minds, we might call him the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son, the pre-incarnate Christ, if you will. He's the same angel of the Lord who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. He's the same angel of the Lord who appeared to Joshua with a sword in his hand, announcing judgment upon the Canaanites, and now he stands to bear witness against Balaam, the son of Beor. 
If you wonder why the Lord is angry at Balaam for going, when he said he could go, hold that thought. So we get to verse 32. But for now, let the significance of this situation hit you the way that it's supposed to hit you. Verse 22 says that the angel of the Lord, Yahweh himself, stood in the road as Balaam's adversary. The word there in the Hebrew is Satan. We give it a different pronunciation. We call it Satan. It is actually a common Hebrew noun. It means adversary. It became later the proper name of the accuser of the brethren. And so it's in Job that we learn that the adversary, the Satan, comes before the Lord to breathe out accusation against God's servant. Here we find that the angel of God himself stands to accuse Balaam as an adversary against him. Now let me ask you, what is the essence in scriptural terms, the difference between blessing and cursing? Blessing and cursing in biblical terms. The essence of blessing in biblical terms is the state of being at peace with the God of creation. It is having fellowship with him. It is a state of shalom, a state of wholeness. It is acceptance and fellowship with the God who made us for his glory. Cursing, on the other hand, is the opposite. Cursing is the biblical equivalent of being an enemy of that same God, of being at odds with him. In fact, it's what makes the good news of the gospel so incredibly good. Romans chapter 5 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So the gospel is good news because the gospel pronounces peace in the place of opposition. It offers fellowship where there once had been hostility. And through the death and resurrection of the incarnate Son of God, the gospel declares eternal blessings on those who were once counted the cursed enemies of God. And now the Lord stands as an adversary. Balaam. This man is cursed beyond counting. He is stubbornly plodding along in paths of unrighteousness. He is inches away from the judgment of the Lord. And mighty Balaam, sorcerer to the stars, is so spiritually blind that he can't even see it. In fact, that is the whole point of this episode with the donkey. I think we're supposed to read it as something like satire. Satire that really happened, satire that, that showed up in the history of Israel, uh, but satire nonetheless. The Lord intends to make a laughing stock of Balaam. He does it so that we would have the same attitude concerning the powers of this world that the Lord has concerning the powers of this world. Psalm 2 says, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, but he who sits in heaven laughs. He holds them in derision. All the best they can do, it's a joke. He laughs, and so should we. And that's what this donkey is doing here. It is meant to be a ridiculous picture. 
here comes Balaam, the, the personification of the most powerful weapon of mass destruction that the ancient world can muster against God's people. And until the Lord opens his eyes, Balaam has less spiritual wisdom than the beast he comes riding on. You know, the story is already familiar. The Lord takes his stand in three different places, and each stand successively increases the confrontation between Balaam and the judgment of God. So first the angel stands in the road, apparently next to a field. Next he, he stands uh, by the vineyards in between two walls. Finally he stands in a place where there is no, turn, no place to turn to the right or the left. Three times it tells us the angel stands, and three times the text repeats, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. She saw what Balaam could not see. And when she saw the angel of the Lord, she tried everything she could to get out of his way. And so she, she saw the angel of the Lord, and she tried to avoid him. She saw the angel of the Lord, and she crushed Balaam's foot. She saw the angel of the Lord, and at last she lay down under her rider and refused to move another inch. Meanwhile, Balaam is presented as a man unhinged. He's absolutely blind to what the donkey sees. Each time she turns, each time she squeezes or she stops short of the mark, he multiplies violence against the animal. And the tension builds and the anger grows until we find Balaam standing in the road, beating this donkey like a madman, all because she refuses to go where he wants her to go. And then the first of two miracles happens in this passage. Verse 28 says, then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. Pastor, how did he do it? I don't know. <laughs> There's another question with that unanswered. I, I don't know how he did it. I don't know if she, she suddenly received a, a larynx and a voice box. I don't know if she spoke with human tongues that everybody could understand. I don't know if her braying became something that da Balaam could discern. I don't know how he did it, but I know he did. The text says the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and actually it shouldn't be surprising. The Lord ordains his truth from the mouth of babes. The Lord puts his oracles in the prophets he chooses. Jesus said if his people would stop crying out and praise to him, even the rocks would begin to sing. So yeah, yeah, he did it. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. On the one hand, it is condemnation of whatever mystical power Balaam might have thought he had as a world-famous guru. It's a condemnation of Balaam. On the other hand, it's a confirmation that the Lord sends his word how and when and through whom he wants to. He is sovereign over the going forth of his word. So the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey and the donkey speaks. Why have you struck me these three times? Because you have made a fool out of me, says the guy who talks to donkeys. Right? He's so caught up with presenting the, the perfect, powerful picture when he gets to Balak so that there's still a little something left that he can hope in, but he's watching that hope just be dashed to pieces. You've made a fool of me. I wish that I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you, he says. 
And then comes the second miracle. Verse 31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and he fell on his face. It's rather donkey-like, isn't it? When finally the Lord opens Balaam's eyes and he saw what the donkey saw, he did what the donkey did. With no room to turn to the right or to the left, he went down on his face before the presence of the Lord just like the donkey. At last, the Lord tells us why his anger was kindled against Balaam. Verse 32, Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. In other words, Balaam might be going where the Lord said that he could go, but he's still going there hoping deep down that he can do what he wants to do. Remember, that's what the Lord told him. You may go, you may go with them, but you must do only what I say to you. You have to remember that Balaam is a professional manipulator. This is his job. In the ancient pagan mind, they operated on the principle that if you knew the right formulas, if you knew the right rituals, you could elicit a response from the spiritual realm. If you just tried hard enough, if you kept trying, eventually you could get the gods to give you just about whatever you wanted. Sometimes the rituals the gods demanded were dark and costly, like offering up your firstborn in the fires to Molech or cutting yourself at the altars of Baal. In the normal course of daily pagan ritual, it, it just evolved into worship that, that surprise, surprise, uh, just legitimized all of man's sinful tendencies. And so it showed up in things like ritual prostitution, spiritualized drunkenness. I have a friend who used to follow Christ, who moved out west and now offers what he calls uh, sacred medicine voyages. People come to him and they, they ingest frog venom. And they have a hallucinogenic trip. They're doing drugs. But, but it's worship, you see. You, you get in touch with the divine. And so it devolves into maybe whatever you want. And you see a vision and you come away and you, you figure it out and, and somebody's there to interpret it for you and to massage you along the way. This is what Balaam does. He's a professional manipulator. And so far as the pagan world was concerned, if you just showed enough persistence, eventually the gods would let you have what you wanted. And in verse 32, we find that Balaam is taking that approach with the Lord. Just like a stubborn donkey, he's pushing forward with his own direction. He is choosing to ignore every indication that he's going against God's will in the matter. He's hoping that if he just gets a little bit closer, maybe the situation's going to change. Maybe he can find the right angle. Maybe he can figure out the right offering. Maybe he'll learn the right formula. And by the end, the magician who wished he had a sword in his hand meets the God who does have a sword in his. And that's what it took to open the eyes of Balaam. Now eventually the Lord sends him to Moab as a captive prophet. Even though he's greeted on the borders, it says at the far extremity of the borders, he's treated like a king like a visiting dignitary. A sacrificial feast is given in his honor. 
finally at the end, he gets it. And when Balak says, I called you, don't you know what I can do for you? Don't you know that I am able to honor you? And finally, Balaam gets it. Verse 38, he tells us where truth and blessing really come from. Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. But have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts into my mouth, that must I speak. That's the story of, of the blindness of Balaam. In the end, it really only served to show the power of the Lord through this man who thought he was going to get his own way. I mentioned that we were going to come back and make a, a few points of application. There are three of them. They're not alliterative. Uh, but the first point of application, and I hope rather quickly, the first point is that there is no spiritual power outside of God's command. There's no spiritual power outside of God's command. That's what Balak wanted. He wanted some power. He wanted some entity. He wanted some cosmic force outside of and larger than the God of Israel. He wanted a cosmic force big enough to control the course of the nations, yet small enough that he could tuck him into his back pocket. And the truth of the matter is, there is no such power. There is no power greater than the God of the Bible because there is no power outside of the God of the Bible. Every angel, every demon, every idol or authority, every spiritual power, real or imagined, is under the thumb of the only God who really is. This has far more to do with our faith than silly things like, like horoscopes and hashtags. All right, remember that uh, what Job suffered, and when Satan tried to make accusations against him, he had to ask permission from the Lord. Even when Satan tried the same trick with the disciples, Jesus says, Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. It's no longer a question, but rather a demand, says Jesus. Satan has demanded to have you, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. It means that the word of Jesus prevails over the word of the devil. It means, as Martin Luther once put it, even the devil is God's devil. So as we walk through this world as God's children, we need not fear the hex of charlatans. We need not fear the powers of hell. We need not imagine that our circumstances or our struggles or our sins are too much for God to handle. Whatever you are facing, dear Christian, if you face it in Christ, it is all held tight in the Father's loving hands. How do I know that? Because all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. And there is no spiritual authority or power outside God's command. Second application. There's no spiritual wisdom apart from God's revelation. No spiritual wisdom apart from God's revelation. The Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. He showed him the reality of his sin. He showed him the truth of God's judgment. 
And the miracle that God worked for Balaam is the very same miracle he has to work for us before we can ever hope to see him or know him or turn to him in repentance. The scriptures are clear. Without the internal renewing work of the Holy Spirit of God to remove the scales of unbelief from our sin-darkened eyes, we have no more spiritual sight than a corpse in a coffin. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It is the Holy Spirit alone who gives spiritual wisdom. It is God alone who can open our eyes and give us faith. So what that means is, yes, by all means, preach the gospel to those who do not believe. Yes, please preach the gospel. Proclaim Christ and Him crucified from any rooftop you can find into any conversation you find yourself in. Yes, bulk up on your apologetics and your doctrine and your theology and always be ready to give an answer to those who ask about the hope that is within you. Share the gospel. But do not forget to pray to the Lord to ask Him to do the work that only He can do. To give spiritual eyes where there are no spiritual eyes. Because there's no spiritual wisdom apart from God's revelation. Finally, no one, and this is where the text has been driving us, no one is able to turn God's blessing into a curse. Come and curse this people for me, says Balak. But he wanted an impossibility. The Lord said, you shall not curse this people, for they are blessed. And this is the story of the church of God. It's true under the shadows of the old covenant. It's still true in the sunshine of the new covenant. Those who have received the blessing of God can never come into his cursing. Those who have been given peace with the Lord shall never again be counted as his enemies. And we know this because the Son of God incarnate has taken the curse that we deserve. He has extinguished that curse completely in the ocean of his forgiveness. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive promised spirit through faith. Do you understand what he's saying? So that our eyes would be enlightened as only the Holy Spirit can enlighten our eyes and it happens because Jesus took the curse that we deserve as the enemies of God and instead he gives us the blessing of Abraham that Balak was trying to snuff out and the, the scriptures tell us it's impossible to do so. Moab imagined that he could overturn the covenant blessings of God to Abraham, but the blessings and the promises of God are irrevocable. The promises of God cannot be undone. And it means that if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, that is true of you. 
And if God be for you, who can be against you? Neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is God's blessing spoken over you who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one is able to turn God's blessing into a curse. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you for Christ who became the curse for us so that we might receive your blessed Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, thank you for the gift of faith to trust in him to become members of your body. We pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would still give eyes to those who don't yet see. Oh, Lord, keep us walking with you and trusting that your blessing rests upon all of your children all our lives long. We confess that very often we look at the things that we're facing and we wonder and we struggle whether maybe, Lord, you have forgotten us or left us or begun to curse us. Maybe for our sin, maybe something we've done, maybe something we've left undone and our consciences accuse us, but, Lord, you have one who has taken the blame, who gives us the word that there is no one left to accuse when the Lord stands on our behalf, when he intercedes for the saints. Father, thank you for praying for Peter. Thank you for interceding for us with the blood that speaks a better word than Abel. Father, thank you for the blessing of life and peace with you and blessing forevermore in Jesus Christ. Help us to live from that each day of our lives until we see it fulfilled. Enjoy in your presence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.